This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another World of UX podcast. This is Darren Hood, and I'm here to share my knowledge, my experience with all those interested in the discipline of user experience, the discipline of UX. Sometimes we might talk about history. We'll talk about career paths. We'll talk about methods, methodologies. We'll talk about research. We'll talk about some of the things I've mentioned on this show that maybe may not have heard it explained before the way that I presented it, but that's fine. We don't all have to use the same terminology pretty much. It's all about inspiring one another. It's all about taking in as much as we can. It's all about growth. It doesn't matter where you are in your UX journey today. If you've been doing UX for a long time, I'm sure that you know the value of taking the time to listen to different thought leaders in the field. And somebody always says something that we haven't considered before, or they present it in a way that makes us think about it in a different way just taking on a different perspective and it expands our horizons. It helps us to innovate. Diversity is the key to innovation. And when you have this, this just explosion of different thoughts and maybe somebody explaining something that maybe you hadn't, hadn't heard it that way before. That's one of the things that really makes us tick. It helps us go up another level. I love listening to other people. I know other people who love listening to other people. So if you're just starting out, if you're an entry-level person, if you're a mid-level UXer, if you're senior, there's there's something to be had for everyone when we take the time to sit down and take in what somebody is presenting. I'm honored. I'm thankful that you're taking the time out to listen to the World of UX podcast. And I take in a lot of other podcasts and a lot of other resources myself because that's just the way that it works. No one person has it all. But if we take what we're all sharing and we put it together and we take the best of what everybody's got, man, I mean, there's so many great things can happen. And I'm always excited. I'm more excited to listen to others. People would never believe it. I'm actually shy. (laughs) So I speak out of necessity. And, And right now I have an obligation to people listening to this broadcast to share with you what I know and help you as much as I can. So again, I'm glad you're here. I hope you appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe no matter what resource, no no matter what venue you're listening to the podcast on. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, Leave us some comments. Let us know how we're impacting. We'd love to hear from you. But at any rate, let's move forward today. I just thought I'd I'd just digress a little bit and share those things with you. So last week, we uh, the previous two weeks, actually, we spent time covering the topic of historic milestones, modern user experience, historic milestones. And as we have been doing, we have been building. And so we're going to build again. So I'm going to do a slight recap, very, very slight. And then we want to take you forward with the new topic, which I'll share with you in just a moment. So during that recap of modern historic UX milestones. We talked about Don Norman in 95 when he first took on the title. We talked about the Polar Bear book 
and how information architecture started coming to the forefront. We didn't get into a lot of details about that. We'll talk about information architecture another time because there are other leaders that we could mention. We're not trying to mention everything on every show. We're doing what we can in the time allotted and we're moving forward. So for those of you who are wondering why I did not mention Richard Saul Werman, here's a time for that. Uh, we will mention him. Definitely, you can't talk about information architecture without talking about Richard Saul Werman. Uh, but in the interest of time, and because of what it is we're trying to accomplish, and because we are being careful to put those building blocks together, he didn't get mentioned. So uh, just in case you didn't catch it, that was a little shout out to him right there. But the Polar Bear book, about 98 or so, information architecture starts to come to the forefront. The dot-com bust comes into play, the boom, then the bust. And I like to think that UX helps save us from that because companies start to become a bit more user-centered in their designs. They started taking what customers and users and clients, what they're trying to do. Why are they coming to our site? This is part of what UX is all about. It's, it's about anticipating needs and taking those user needs, those business needs, and then operating based on the, the limits that the constraints present to us, but trying to marry those three elements so that we can optimize and get as many wins for users as possible and as many wins for the business as possible without sacrificing one for the other. And so UX professionals help navigate those waters. So we got the dot-com boom, followed by the dot-com bust. UX is starting to build momentum, information architecture, which is what everybody was pretty much called, either an information architect or an interaction designer, UX even though Don Norman was called a UX architect, the the acronym user experience was not something that was even remotely thought of the way that we think about it today, especially in those terms. You fast forward, the creative agencies, most of the, the positions in the professional world resided there within the creative agencies and they were being hired by the corporations to help them to drive user-centered design and help them to be more successful so that they didn't repeat their failures of flopping on the internet. So not too long after that, NASA, they conducted the research, NASA and IBM about the ROI, not gonna get into that either today, but the ROI was a big element and companies started to realize, wow, okay, so this UX thing, this is for real, you're telling me this is real, so we need to get involved with this. And so a lot of the corporations began to, to hire people within their companies and not just depend on the creative agencies, but they began to hire UX people and bring them in-house. And that's around 2003 to 2007. You start to see that happening a lot more. From 2007, about 2010 or so, you have a really, uh, the, the hiring boom really starts. Again, for the most part, most of the positions were only available at the creative agencies, but you did start to see a shift where hiring was starting to become sort of mainstream in many corporate uh, operations as well. The problem, however, and this is going to lead us into today's topic, the problem is that while people were indeed, uh, the, the companies were starting to build their UX operations, there were no, no problem about that. No problems in getting involved. The education, as we mentioned, was not taking place. Companies were starting to build their UX operations, 
but they weren't taking the time to understand what UX is. And that's where we want to have our jumping off point this week. And the topic that we're going to cover today and next week is the quest for UX maturity. When you think about the the historical milestones that I shared with you the previous two weeks, it really, it begs the question, where do we go from here? Okay, we're in the wild, wild west of UX now. We're now, everybody's high. There's, oh my goodness, you, you go to LinkedIn, you go to Glassdoor, you go to ZipRecruiter, you go to Dice, and I make it a, my business to know what's going on out there because I, I mentor a lot of people and I need to know what's happening so that I can speak accurately and authoritatively when I'm giving people guidelines. And I see what's happening and it's amazing how how much hiring in the world of UX is taking place. But this element that I'm going to talk to you about now is what's missing. Now, somebody may say, what is UX maturity? And, and I'll expand that question. What is a UX maturity level? Because UX maturity, it's, it's something that is graded based on levels, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, so to speak. And you might have several, several different levels there. And there's a lot of different UX maturity models out there. So I don't want anybody to hear what I'm saying now. And then you're thinking, oh, great. Okay. Uh, after you hear me talk, you want to run out and find, find a UX maturity level that's going to work for your organization, no matter what. If this is something that you're hearing for the first time, it is going to take a little bit of time. You're going to need to understand what a UX maturity level is. You're going to need to educate yourself about the different maturity levels that are out there. You're going to need to find out which one or ones work best for your organization. And one of the reasons there's a lot of maturity level models out there is because people have personalized them. And so another one is born and then another one is born and then another one is born. Don't feel bad as we're going through this topic. I encourage you, look at the different maturity levels. I'm going to talk about one in particular before we're done today. Look at the different UX maturity levels that are out there. Find out which one works best for your organization. Please be honest about what you see and what you're shooting for. I've seen people be zealous about UX maturity levels, and they really just create a, a a complete pitfall for themselves. They sabotage themselves from the beginning because they were not being honest about where they were and where they could go and the amount of time it took to get there. But I'm getting ahead of myself just a tad. Let, let's touch on some of these more foundational elements again. First, let me back up a little bit. So what is a UX maturity level? Let's, 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 Pick up there again. Uh, it, it is basically, it's something that describes, I mentioned to you that there's, it could be seven levels, it could be five, but no matter how many levels it is, a UX maturity level, a model, it describes various levels of organizational evolution and operation as it pertains to user experience. If that doesn't make a lot of sense, Bear with me and I'll, I'll break that down a little bit more shortly, but I want to present a couple other thoughts and questions. Next question. Why is a maturity level important? Why should you care? And what is in it for you, your organization in particular? We'll talk about on a personal level, 
in another episode. But what is it? Why is it important to your organization? And there's a few thoughts that I have on that. Number one, the more mature an organization is, the better your your organization, the more likely your organization will outperform its competition. Remember the IBM and the NASA ROI information? For every dollar you invest in UX, you gain a return on investment of anywhere from 10 to 240. That's pretty hefty. And the report that was published by the Design Management Institute listed organizations. This was a little a little different the way that they that they went about doing the report there. It's based on the previous research that was done. But what they did in the DMI report is they list out the companies, which gives us a little bit more of a point of reference because as you see a company like Coca-Cola, when you see a company like Whirlpool and you look at their operation and you take into consideration what they're doing to give themselves a competitive advantage in the professional world, it's it's phenomenal. All of these companies, not only are they outperforming their competition, not only are they acing it, when it comes to return on investment, their UX maturity levels are phenomenal. They're absolutely phenomenal. So they're outperforming their competition. Just huge. Some Anyone who's in the business world, that's one of the things you want to do. You want to be a top company in your arena. Next statement. Another reason why. UX maturity levels provide a means of examination for your own operation. And it helps you provide a way to measure your status, your progress, and your goals. Where is our team today? Where should our team be in a year, in two years, in five years? Where should we be? What are we doing to help our UX team achieve those levels of UX maturity? All of these things are are, are mindsets and plans, strategies that will help overcome what I mentioned in other other broadcasts about these companies that were getting involved in UX, but not getting educated. When you have a good maturity level, you have the right people in place. You have the right UX strategies in place so that you know how to execute. You know how to deliver on your UX product. You know how to build your brand, your team's UX brand within the company. You know how to operate you know how to build relationships and all of that really comes clear or becomes a lot clearer. I should say when you look at one of the models. So we only have a few minutes left in the time that we have left. And and, and again, there are several schools of thought on this subject. So you're going to see a lot of them. If you go out there, I'm going to focus on one of the first ones that was published back in 2006, Jacob Nielsen, one of the leading uh, uh, UX minds that we've had in the history of this discipline and a contemporary of Donald Norman. Of course, they run NNG Group. He developed a UX maturity model that had eight levels, eight different levels. Let me describe some of these to you quickly. Number one, the very bottom rung. Think of it as a ladder, if you will. 
The first rung is that of hostility. And the way that that one is described is described where uh, people don't want to hear anything about users, don't care about the needs of users. And if you bring it up, they're pretty much going to fight you about it and they're going to make demands that you're what you're doing from a UX perspective is done a different way. Matter of fact, a lot of them will just say, hey, you know what? Forget all that. All that stuff you're talking about, we don't want to hear that. Why don't you just go and make this pretty? That is the absolute bottom rung of UX maturity. And he also has a timeline. I'm not going to present the timeline because if, I, number one, I don't think it's going to take this long to do it. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight. Never happens overnight to make your operation more mature. But some of these timelines, some of you adventurous folks out there, you look it up, you'll see it. You'll see exactly what I mean. Not even going to discuss that. You want to see your UX team uh, get thrown out with the trash? Tell them how long it takes to get to to level eight. And uh, you'll see what I mean. So we'll just throw that out. Let's just keep moving forward. That's my recommendation. My professional recommendation. Keep your UX operation moving forward. Number two developer-centered. And I'm sure we, a lot of us have seen the hostility level, level one. A lot of us have seen level two, where the developers, the people who were doing the code, the people who were actually building the digital solution, they're the ones that are pretty much calling the shots. And in these operations, the UX team can hand wireframes or prototypes over to a development team, but they still do what they want to do. Anyway, I've spoken with a lot of people. I've seen it over the course of my career. People hate this when it happens. Folks, this is the reality of dealing with UX. And again, you have so many companies that don't know what UX is. They hired some good people. They may have hired some of the wrong people. They hired people that said they do UX, but they really don't. And you get this big uh, hodgepodge this motley crew, and you're trying to do UX, and you might know exactly what needs to be done, but you know what? If you're in a situation where the people are at level one or level two, you have to ride that out, and you have to exercise patience, and this is one of the reasons why the emotional intelligence, as I mentioned before, is so critical to UX professionals because it will not always go our way. Matter of fact, it rarely does go the UX team's way. So when we know what's best, you know it's the absolute best thing to do, that does not mean that folks are going to listen to you. So you're going to have to ride that out, be patient, be professional, be diplomatic, and do what you can and just bide your time and continue to go forward as much as you can. We're only going to have time to cover one more of these today, and that's called skunk works. And some of you are probably thinking, what? That's really a thing? Yes, it is. That is the third level. And this is where the UX team is allowed to do some work, especially when it comes to research, but it's limited to guerrilla research or some external usability studies, things of that nature. You're not allowed to do any ethnography. You're not allowed to do remote usability testing. You're not doing card sorting. A lot of the things that you know would be beneficial for the team, you're not able to do. So you're only able to get these quick, fast gorilla testing in, and that data will get you somewhere. But that's not where we want to be today. So folks, 
This is a work in progress. A, a finding higher levels of UX maturity is always a work in progress. Let's be committed to that and let's go forward and get wins again for the users, for the business, and let's build our own brands of our UX teams. All right, folks, we'll pick up where we left off next week. Until next time, this is Darren Hood, the world of UX. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.